Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Friday. I hope everyone has had a wonderful week. Today, we are going to do, as promised, the other side of the vaccine debate with Dr. Paul Offit. Before we get into that, I'm going to tell you about one of my favorite companies ever. That is Bolster Sleep. You know, both my husband and I love our Bolster Sleep pillows. We love our Bolster Sleep mattress that we have in our nursery. It is awesome. They just make really quality products that truly make you sleep better at night. Before I had my Bolster Sleep pillow, I was always getting a crick in my neck and I was waking up, tossing and turning throughout the night. Now, now that my newborn is sleeping for long chunks of time, it is really important to me that I can sleep during that time as well without getting uncomfortable. Bolster Sleep allows me to do that. So go to bolstersleep.com. You can use promo code Allie. That's A-L-L-I-E for 12% off your purchase. I highly recommend if you're not just going to get a pillow, I recommend that you at least look at their mattresses. I mean, there's really nothing to lose. You're going to get a better night's sleep. It's so comfortable. The material is very quality. Look at their mattresses. Who knows? This could maybe change your life. I'm not guaranteeing anything. I don't think I can technically make or legally make that promise, but I can tell you that it's a possibility. So go to bolstersleep.com, use promo code Allie, A-L-L-I-E for 12% off your purchase. Okay. Without further ado, here is Dr. Offit. Dr. Offit, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, could you tell everyone who doesn't know, although I think there are a lot of people listening who already do, who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm a, an attending physician here in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine here in Philly. And you have been studying vaccines for a long time, correct? Yeah, I'm actually the co-inventor of a vaccine. The um, the bovine human reassortant vaccine Rotatec. Uh, we created those strains in our lab in the 80s, and that became a routinely recommended vaccine in 2006. So what inspired you? Maybe that's uh, not the right word, but what encouraged you to go into this realm? Why have you dedicated so much of your career, not just to studying vaccines and creating a vaccine, but also talking about the importance of vaccines? I think the real answer to that question is, um, you know, when I was five years old, I was in a polio ward. So um, I didn't have polio, but I had had a um, basically unsuccessful operation on my right foot for a congenital deformity. But I remember that. I mean, this was back in the 1950s. You know, it's not like there were play dogs and TVs and uh, therapeutic pets. There was just a ward where there were, uh, there were 19 children with polio. And I just think I saw them as vulnerable and helpless and alone. There was only one visiting hour a week. It was pretty grim. Um, and I think that image always stuck with me. And, and it certainly propelled me to go into um, pediatrics and ultimately actually to write a book about polio and the polio vaccine, which I wrote uh, about nine books ago called uh, The Cutter Incident. But um, yeah, I think that's it. I think it's just this, I guess we at some level are always treating ourselves. I think that's true for me too. And I said that image of me as a child uh, always stuck with me. Yeah, you uh, have plenty of detractors in this day and age. This is obviously a very passionate debate, especially over the last few years. Your detractors say, oh, you can't listen to anything he says because he's bought and paid for by the pharmaceutical companies. Is that true? What should I have done differently? I mean, we created strains that we thought could prevent a disease that causes about 75,000 children to be hospitalized every year and about uh, 60 children to die every year in the United States. It kills 2,000 children a day in the developing world. So I'll ask you, what should I have done differently? When we, when we had the strains that we thought could be a vaccine to prevent all this suffering and hospitalization and death, 
Several things are true. Only pharmaceutical companies have the resources and expertise to make the vaccine. That was a $1.2 billion effort on the part of the company that made it. Um, they're not going to make it unless the technology is protected, so, which is to say patented. I mean, should I just have just stopped right there when we created strains that we thought could be a vaccine and left it at that? I mean, I think people just think that any time you ever associate with a pharmaceutical company, you're evil. Now, I mean, the fact of the matter is, I was never paid by that pharmaceutical company. I mean, I, my funding always came from the National Institutes of Health via a series of grants. And even when we patented that vaccine, I work at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I am the intellectual property of this hospital. They own that patent, not me. So they're the ones who sold the patent out more than 10 years ago. I don't make a penny from pharmaceutical companies. I don't make a penny from vaccines. Talk to me about this vaccine hesitant movement or people who are very concerned about vaccines. Do you think uh, you've dealt, you know, you've dealt with them a lot and you've dealt with their, with their arguments a lot. Do you think that there is a whole lot of uh, legitimacy to this side? I think that, that parents should be skeptical of anything they put into their children's bodies, including vaccines. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask the question, especially now. I mean, you know, when I was little, um, I had measles. I had mumps. I had German measles. I had chickenpox. I was a child of the 50s and 60s. Now, my parents, who were children of the 20s, had, the, you know, they saw diphtheria as a routine killer of teenagers. They saw polio as a crippler. Um, my children are like you. I mean, they're in their mid-20s. They, you know, they um, don't see these diseases today. They, they didn't grow up with these diseases. So I think with that, knowing that the disease is much less com uh, common, it's, I think, safety becomes paramount. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask the question, yes, I think you should, should, I mean, should ask that we, you know, today we ask parents like you to, to, in the first few years of life, to prevent 14 different diseases. That can mean as many as 26 inoculations during that time. It can mean as many as five shots at that time to prevent, or at one time, to prevent diseases most people don't see using biological fluids most parents don't understand. So I think it's perfectly understandable how it can be confusing. But, but there's a difference between being skeptical and being cynical. I think that if, for example, you one has the question, look, my child was fine, they got a vaccine, now months later, they're developing signs and symptoms of autism, could the vaccine have done that? That's a fair question. The good news is it's an answerable question. So when study after study after study shows that in this case, for example, vaccines don't cause autism, then you should believe it. I mean, I think that the public health community and the academic community, when parents have questions about vaccines, do respond to those questions by spending tens of billions of dollars to answer that question. So it's very frustrating, I guess, for people like me that when those studies are done and then people still don't believe it, that's when they cross the line from skeptic to cynic or worse, sort of conspiracy theorists. And I think, you know, your question before about am I in the pocket of industry, right? I mean, it's as if the only reason that I would ever stand up on behalf of children would be because I would be in the pocket of industry. Isn't it remotely possible that I stand up for the children for the same reason that I went into pediatrics, for the same reason that I devoted 25 years of my life to make a vaccine to help children? Right. Wouldn't Do you that think also be a reasonable explanation? <laughs> Right. Do you think that part of the problem or part of the reason why um, these fears can kind of snowball sometimes is not only because of some people's own experiences, like you mentioned, but also because some pediatricians just maybe aren't equipped to talk about vaccines and how they how they work? Do you think that could be part of the problem? 
Yeah, I think time is also it, too. I mean, I think for my wife is a private practicing pediatrician, you know, so she'll see sometimes 40 or 45 patients in a day. It's hard, I think, to really devote time to answer the question that all, all parents have uh, or many parents have about vaccines. So I think it's frustrating on both sides. I think it's frustrating for the parent because they have reasonable questions and don't feel they're given necessarily the time to have those questions answered. And it's frustrating on the on the part of the pediatrician and that often there isn't that time, which is why at Children's Hospital Philadelphia, we created the vaccine education center to try and at least provide information for parents that, that have questions about vaccine and frankly for doctors that also that have questions about vaccine. A really big concern that I've heard a lot of parents say is about the ingredients in vaccines. So they cite aluminum, formaldehyde, even uh, human fetal cells. They're they're worried about that. They think that these are uh, neurotoxins that we're injecting into our pure little babies and that um, they will lead to all kinds of things either down the line or either within 24 hours. What do you say to parents who are worried about ingredients that sound kind of bad? Well, I think it's perfectly reasonable to ask the question. I mean, you know, we, we take children, to, for example, at two months of age, we pin them down against their will, and we inoculate them with five different, as many as five different uh, shots that contain agents that sound scary. So is, is this doing harm? I mean, take formaldehyde, for example, you mentioned that. I mean, you know, when people hear the word formaldehyde, they think this is used to preserve people when they're dead. I mean, why would we right. ever give this to a child? Remember, though, that formaldehyde is a product of single carbon metabolism. We've been making formaldehyde in our bodies ever since we crawled out of ocean onto land. You have 10 times more formaldehyde in your circulation than you would ever get from a vaccine. I mean, similarly, aluminum is the most common heavy metal on the Earth's crust. Assuming you live on the Earth's surface and you drink the water that, or anything made from water, including breast milk or infant formula, again, you'll be exposed to logarithmically more aluminum than you would ever be exposed to in vaccines. So this notion of that your child, once they enter the, 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 once they leave the birth canal and enter the world, are in this sterile, free, you know, sort of toxin-free environment, it's not true. I mean, the, the, the dose always makes the poison, which is to say, certainly aluminum at high concentrations can be be dangerous but you know you're not exposed to anything near those concentrations in vaccines remember you're exposed to aluminum every day assuming you live on the earth's crust and you think that right now the cdc schedule that is suggested for infants is totally safe i know that's a huge worry that a lot of new parents have I think nothing is totally safe. I think that, that any time you give a medical product, whether it's a, a biological like vaccines or a drug like ampicillin or amoxicillin, you know, the, the, we would only recommend that if the benefits clearly and definitively outweigh the risk. But, but do vaccines have risks? Of course they do. I mean, you're asked to stay in the doctor's office 15 minutes after you get a vaccine to make sure that your child doesn't have a so-called allergic or hypersensitivity reaction so-called type 1 immediate hypersensitivity reaction, which can cause a lower blood pressure. It can cause shock. It's extremely rare. But, but you know, the doctor's office has the epinephrine in hand were that ever to happen. Um, Measles-containing vaccine can cause a lowering of the platelet count. It's transient. Platelets are, are these small cells in your bloodstream that help the blood to clot. That can cause a lowering of the platelet count, which can cause these little, what looks like little broken blood vessels on your, on your skin. It, it doesn't have permanent harm but it certainly is frightening. I mean, vaccines can cause fever. Fever can cause febrile seizures, which is primarily seen in children less than five years of age. My, my daughter had a febrile seizure when she was uh, when she was too associated with the DTAP vaccine. So it's certainly hard to watch. It doesn't have permanent sequelae, but again, it's scary. The oral polio vaccine, which we gave in this country um, from 1963 up until 2000, could itself cause polio. 
That vaccine could itself cause polio. It was rare. It occurs in one per 2.4 million cases, but it was real. So, no, I think nothing is absolutely safe. I mean, walking outside on a rainy day, you could be struck by lightning. People die in shower and bath-related accidents every day. Um, nothing is absolutely safe. So the issue is always do the benefits outweigh the risks. But you obviously believe that in most cases, uh, the benefits do outweigh the risks in vaccines. I think I think assuming there's not a medical contraindication to getting a vaccine, like if you're severely immune compromised because you have cancer, because you're getting immune suppressive therapies for a chronic disease, if you're not, you don't have a medical contraindication. Yes, I think the benefits of, of every vaccine outweigh its risks. Even something like polio that has been, I guess I don't know if scientifically you you, you even use the word eradicated ever, but seems to have been eradicated in this country. You feel like it's better for someone to get the vaccine, even though they probably won't get the disease. Well, so polio hasn't been eradicated from the world. I mean, there are still right. three countries in which polio is endemic, right. um, and so. Um, do I think that there are people, remember, only about one of every 200 people with polio will have symptoms of paralysis, so, so yet they'll be shedding bacteria in their, uh, in their stools. Do I think that polio, people shedding polio virus in their stools occasionally walk into L.A. airport or New York's LaGuardia airport every year? Yes, I think they do. If you lower immunization rates here far enough, polio could come back. Um, but the, the point you make, though, that smallpox has been eradicated. We haven't seen a smallpox a case of smallpox any in the were in the world since the 1970s and that's why we stopped giving that vaccine so i think could we stop giving the polio vaccine if polio is eradicated absolutely and i think we're getting there just not quite there yet some people say that it has nothing to do with vaccines at all that actually uh, things like polio smallpox all of that were starting to dwindle before the vaccines were actually introduced and so they say you know there's really no purpose in vaccines we've got all the other stuff kind of taken care of just by other forms of modern medicine. What do you say to that? Well, so if you look at the curve, um, as sanitation in the home or hygiene generally in the country got better, you did to see start to see a slight decline. However, once you introduced the vaccine, there was a dramatic decline. And if you look okay. at a disease like Haemophilus influenza type B, which is a bacterial infection that causes meningitis and bloodstream infection and pneumonia, I mean, that was a common disease. There were 25,000 cases a year. That dominated my residency. I mean, I was a resident in pediatrics at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh in the, uh, in the 1970s, late 1970s. That vaccine didn't really come into existence until the 1990s. When you saw that vaccine come into the existence, the instance of that disease virtually virtually eradicated the disease. I mean, nothing, no, no vaccine has more, been more powerful in my medical lifetime since that. We've gone from 25,000 cases a year to fewer than 50 cases a year. I mean, we, I saw a case of meningitis caused, caused by that bacteria every week when I was a resident. And now I, it is the rare doctor in this hospital who's ever seen a case of that disease. Gotcha. There are um, a lot of parents who claim that their child has been irrevocably, uh, irrevocably harmed by a vaccine and they feel like there's really no place where uh, they can be listened to. They kind of feel like um, the mainstream world thinks that they are lying, that they're making it up. But of course, to them, it is very much it's very much real. What do you say to someone who feels like um, they're kind of isolated in their fear and concern about vaccines because of what has happened to their child? I'm sure it's frustrating for them, but but the fact is is that that just because one event follows another, it doesn't mean it's caused by the other. I mean, my wife 
gives a perfect example when she was a, uh, a uh, when she was you know in in the office helping the nurse give uh, vaccines once on a, a weekend morning. Uh, while my wife was drawing that vaccine up into the syringe, there was a four month old sitting on the mother's lap. Okay, so she hadn't given the vaccine yet; she was just drawing it up into the syringe. That four month old had a seizure and went on to have a permanent seizure disorder and was dead by age five of a yeah. chronic neurological disease. I think if she had given that vaccine five minutes earlier and then the mother and mm. then the child had a seizure and then the child went on to have a permanent seizure disorder, i.e. epilepsy, and then went on to die of a chronic neurological disease, I think there are no amount of statistical data in the world that would have convinced that mother of anything other than the vaccine caused it. You know, we think I'm stupid, my child gets a vaccine, five minutes later has a seizure and now has this permanent seizure disorder, I know what I saw. In fact, but as it turns out, she was just drawing the vaccine up into the syringe. But I can understand the compelling nature of anecdote, although, but the fact of the matter is not all anecdotal associations are causal associations. But I think it raises the question. So the, when a parent says, could this vaccine have caused permanent harm? I think it's then incumbent upon the medical community, the public health community, to do studies to answer that question. And when the answer is then no, I think parents have to believe it. Um, but many, don't, or some don't. Have there been studies to show, I know we talked about studies associated with vaccines and autism, have there been studies to show that, for example, vaccines don't cause SIDS or don't cause a permanent epileptic disorder? Yes over and over again. I think when, when the SIDS issue came up, which was primarily with the hepatitis B vaccine in the 90s, um, you know, because that was the first vaccine we were giving to newborns. Right. Um, you know, I think people were concerned. And so it's not hard to do these studies. You just, just have to take large numbers of children, retrospectively see who got the vaccine, who didn't. Make sure you control for those two groups in terms of all other things like healthcare seeking behavior, medical background, socioeconomic background, so that you can isolate the effect of that one variable, in this case, receipt of a vaccine. And and then see whether there's a greater incidence in one group versus another. I mean, these are very sensitive studies. When I said before that the oral polio vaccine could cause polio in one per 2.4 million children, that's a very rare event, yet it's easily picked up in a retrospective analysis. So these retrospective analyses are quite powerful. And I guess the frustration for me is when you know parents uh, are upset, and it certainly they get upset at me occasionally. Um, it's just uh, all I can say is you know that we we've looked and. And in our website, you know, the Vaccine Education Center website, we have a place called Vaccine Safety References. And then we list all the things parents are concerned about. And then we list all the references with like a two or three sentence description of that reference. So parents can look at the original data if they want. I think a concern is even if a parent does go to that page and reads all the FAQs and things like that, the concern is liability. That's a question that I've received a lot is what about the liability for these companies who are making the vaccines? Do you think that there is enough accountability there for safety? Yes. Uh, it, so, so right now we have in place something called the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. So if you want to, if you want to sue a vaccine maker, you can. You just have to go through this program first. So let's say you believe that your child's autism was caused by vaccine. You can try and go through the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. Uh, you won't get compensated there because there's too much data showing that it doesn't cause autism. But you can still sue the company directly. There's nothing that stops you after going through the program from suing the company directly. Nothing. And, and I think that's a misconception people have. They think that these companies are protected from liability. They're not. You have to go through this vaccine injury compensation program first. And frankly, the bar is quite low. I mean, they will occasionally, you know, compensate people for harms that really aren't caused by vaccines just because they want to keep the bar low. Right. If you can, let, me, let me say it this way. If you can't win in the vaccine injury compensation program, you are going to have a hard time win, winning in civil court.
Yeah, I, the they probably have a lot of difficulty because, like you said, correlation doesn't necessarily prove causation. But for parents uh, who believe that it was the vaccine that causes that caused epilepsy or SIDS or something like that, um, I do think that they have a hard case before them, even if they happen to be correct in, in a particular scenario. Because you did say that vaccines can cause uh, fevers that, did, that then cause uh, seizures. So is it not possible that a reaction like that could... Um, cause permanent harm. And so we've looked. Uh, I mean, you know, certainly febrile seizures, meaning seizures associated with fever. Children, you know, between six months and five years of age, or primarily two years to five years of two to five years of age, are, are especially prone to febrile seizures. That does not cause permanent harm. Uh, it, it's it is it, they're usually 30 second seizures. They're tonic clonic, meaning generalized seizures. And study after study has shown that doesn't cause permanent harm. So again, when this issue first came up, I'd say in the early 80s, with associated with a film called DPT Vaccine Roulette, the question was, could the whole cell pertussis vaccine, which we don't use anymore, but was used then, could that cause permanent harm? Could it cause epilepsy? Could it cause developmental delay? Study after study looked at children who received the whole cell pertussis vaccine. I mean, some of whom who would have febrile seizures and found that they didn't. Now, now the, the children who had quote unquote permanent harm, when you looked at when we finally had the genetic tools in hand to answer the question, why did those children have, have sort of permanent seizure disorder, permanent developmental delay? And the answer was invariably that they had something called Dravet syndrome, which is this SCN1A mutation. It's a sort of sodium channel transport defect, which is not caused by vaccines. It's genetic. And so... Um, you know, it's just, it's, it took a while, I think, to understand that. But I can understand how that these anecdotal associations are powerful. And we, you we're always looking for a reason for why something caused something else. But, and vaccines are kind of the universal scapegoat because they're given to, to healthy children. And 90% of people in the United States will, will have their children vaccinated. And, you know, the problem with vaccines is they only prevent vaccine-preventable diseases. They don't prevent everything else that can happen in the first few years of life. But there's always going to be those associations. Some people say that really they don't have a very long lasting effect. So I've heard about herd immunity. Some people say that herd immunity is a myth because uh, by the time people are adults, their immunity has worn out from the childhood immunizations that they've gotten. Is that true? Depends on the vaccine. So, so the whooping cough vaccine, for example, um, even though you get the vaccine at two months, four months, six months, again, at 12 to 15 months of age, again, at four to six years of age, again, at 11 to 13 years of age, that's six doses, still three to five do days, sorry, three to five years after that sixth dose, immunity will start to fade. The mumps vaccine, which is given as a two-dose series, primarily 12 to 15 months of age, again, at uh, four to six years of age, 10 years after dose one and 10 years after dose two, immunity will start to fade. Measles, on the other hand, is an excellent vaccine. I mean, a single dose of that vaccine pr provides 93% protection for the rest of your life. The second dose provides 97% protection for the rest of your life. And if you want to know that herd immunity is real, just look at what's happening now with measles. Because a critical number of people have chosen not to vaccinate their children for this highly contagious vaccine-preventable disease, and that's why it's come back. I mean, if we get immunization back, rates back up again in certain communities, you'll see that disease disappear. That's the perfect example of herd immunity, the reality of herd immunity. And what I've heard to that, the, the people who I would say are vaccine hesitant, they've said, okay, it's not the children who aren't immunized who are getting and spreading the disease. It's actually adults who were immunized as children, but they are no longer immune anymore. But you're saying that that's not possible or true. 
measles measles vaccine immunity is durable and long lasting as distinct from the mumps component of the mmr vaccine measles and rubella are quite long that's why we eliminated measles from this country in the year 2000 that's why we eliminated rubella or german measles in the year 2005 we've never eliminated mumps because immunity is not uh, you know is only about lasts for about 10 years after each dose no it's it's the perfect I mean, if you look at what percentage of children who are currently who currently have measles um you know are, are unvaccinated it's about 90 percent if, if they were vaccinated they wouldn't get measles and some parents say to that well it's better that they have natural immunity than they have um, unnatural immunity from vaccines what would you say to that parent well, if the question is, do you have a, a, a higher titered immune response following natural infection than immunization, the answer is yes. You have about threefold higher antibody levels in your bloodstream if you get naturally infected and then if you're vaccinated. But so the question with vaccines is not, is it the same as natural immunity? The question is, is it good enough? I mean, remember, you, you, you occasionally people have to pay a high price for natural immunity. Before there was a measles vaccine, and remember, I had measles. I mean, anybody my age had measles. Every every year, two to three million children would get measles. Forty-eight thousand would be hospitalized, and five hundred would die. It's kind of I like mean, my generation with chickenpox. We all had chickenpox when we were little. Yeah, that's because you're, you know, we we you're still alive. I mean, yeah. remember, every year about 100 people would die from chickenpox. I mean, you're not going to have those people on your show, and they're not doing shows like yours because they're dead. So, so um, again, if natural infection, if you can survive natural infection, great. But for vaccines, what you hope is that the vaccines can induce at least can induce a level of immunity that's good enough to prevent disease, which certainly was true with measles. We eliminated measles with vaccination, i.e., immunization was good enough to prevent this disease. But now people are choosing to not vaccinate their children and put them in harm's way unnecessarily. One of the most scandalous vaccines, uh, scandalous as in just the reputation or just the PR surrounding it has been Gardasil, the HPV back vaccine. Um, I guess just what are your general thoughts on that? There's a lot of fear surrounding that particular vaccine. The HPV vaccine, which was introduced initially for girls in 2006 and boys in 2010-2011, is a disease that prevents cancer. It, it will prevent 30,000 cases of cancer a year and 5,000 deaths a year, head, neck, anal, genital cancers. That vaccine is the most studied vaccine post-licensure. It's been formally studied in more than a million people. The only thing that vaccine causes is fainting. And you don't even have to get it to faint. You can be just the unsheathing of the needle sometimes can do it or being second in line. I mean, the, the, I don't understand this. I mean, if you ask the question, what does what vaccine preventable disease kills more people than any other? The answer is influenza. The second the second vaccine is HPV. I mean, HPV will prevent 5000 deaths a year, but only about half of girls and half of boys who are recommended to receive that vaccine, i.e. adolescent boys and girls, get it. Therefore, 2000 to 2500 of those children will grow up and die from a preventable cancer because of the misinformation that surrounds that vaccine. And I don't understand it. I mean, it doesn't cause rheumatologic diseases. It doesn't cause cause chronic disease. It doesn't cause chronic pain syndrome. It doesn't cause chronic fatigue syndromes. Nonetheless, people are compelled by, you know, by the fact that there's been these sort of temporal but not causal associations to continue to try and damn this cancer preventing vaccines. And it's our children that, that are suffering that misinformation. Well, honestly, I don't even know what the misinformation is. I just keep hearing um, the scariness surrounding the HPV vaccine, but I haven't actually found any stories or any research about what people think is so scary about it. So what, what are people saying about the HPV vaccine? 
Yeah, so when Katie Couric did a show about this a few years ago, she she had a couple mothers on the show who claimed that it caused chronic pain or chronic fatigue syndromes. But again, that's not true. Well studied in large numbers of people. That of, of all the vaccines that we've talked about so far today, that's the one that upsets me the most. I mean, it's a cancer preventing vaccine. What do people want from vaccines? And this is is this going to save five thousand lives a year every year in the United States, and yet people are hesitant. It's really, really frustrating. One question that I have just as a mom of a newborn is about the Hep B vaccine that we give newborns. Is there a reason why it's recommended even if neither of the parents are Hep B positive? I, that just always confused me of, of why that's necessary for a newborn that doesn't seem to be really at risk of getting hepatitis B. Right. So it makes certain assumptions. We, we assume that when you, we test you for to see whether or not you're infected with hepatitis B, that that, that, that test is 100 uh, percent accurate and it's close, but not, not no test is 100 percent accurate. Secondly, it assumes that you don't acquire H, hepatitis B between the time when you're tested to the time that you deliver. Third, it assumes that the child would never be in contact with someone who has hepatitis B. Remember, about a million people in this country have hepatitis B and don't know it. And when they come by and they kiss your child, um, they may be shedding hepatitis B in their saliva and you don't know it. So because this disease is deadly, if it affects newborns, because that's the child that's most likely 90% chance if they get infected as a newborn to grow up to develop, you know, either liver cancer or chronic liver disease. That's why it's really important. And it's a safe and effective vaccine. So there's no reason not to give it. The flu shot. How effective is that? There's a lot of controversy, I think, just not even from people who are vaccine hesitant. I know a lot of people who will not get the flu shot. They claim it gives them the flu, claim that it gives them all kinds of terrible symptoms and they just won't do it. They'll get every other vaccine, but the flu shot they won't get. How important is it, do you think, to get the flu shot? Well, again, influenza kills 30,000 to 40,000 people a year in this country. I mean, it's primarily, you know, the the, the extremes of age, so those over 65 or those very young. But um, flu's hard. I mean, I studied in a flu lab actually at the Wistar Institute here in Philadelphia in the early 1980s. And the guy who was the head researcher said something to me I'll never forget. He said, if you want to have a research career that lasts for the rest of your life, study influenza. I mean, it's a moving target. Hmm. But again, and last year, last year we missed. I mean, last year, the, the, the so-called H3N2 strain that came up toward, towards the end of the year was not covered by the vaccine. So the vaccine was only about 30% effective. But when you're talking about a, a virus that, that causes, you know, a, a million of people to be or tens or hundreds of thousands of people to be hospitalized and tens of thousands to die 30 percent is still something typically it's 40 to 60 percent effective it's never 100 percent effective i mean the best you're going to do is about 40 to 60 percent effective but when people say you know i got the flu from the flu vaccine what are they talking about i mean it's just two proteins from the influenza virus the hemagglutinin and remittase that virus that's given as a shot cannot possibly reproduce itself it's dead therefore it can't possibly cause symptoms of influenza i think what happens is people go to a doctor office, get get the flu vaccine at the doctor's office or exposed there to somebody who has an upper respiratory tract infection and then say, you know, I got flu from the flu vaccine. It's not possible to get flu from the flu vaccine shot. Or maybe could they have gotten maybe a low grade fever from the vaccine and they kind of assume, oh my gosh, I've gotten a version of the flu. 
Yeah, well, as, as was said when I was a medical student, if medical students want to learn what it's really like to be get sick, get influenza. Influenza is not a subtle disease. I mean, you can date the hour in which you start to get it. It's You have an intense headache, you have fever and shaking chills, and then it occasionally spreads to your lungs and causes pneumonia. Influenza knocks you on your butt. You miss days of, of work or days of school with influenza. It's not like a low-grade fever. No. Okay, we're almost finished. I want to ask you about one of the most contentious topics, and I'm definitely not assuming that we agree on politics, but as a conservative, someone who's pro-life, a question that I get all the time is about uh, fetal cells in vaccines. Some people say that it's a completely a myth, but it's not actually a myth. Tell me about it, how that all works. Well, so it's not a myth. I mean, there are um, two cell lines that were generated, one in England and one in Sweden in the early 1960s, where those cells were obtained from what were therapeutic or uh, not even therapeutic, they were elective abortions. Both were elective abortions. Um, those cells had then been used to make the chickenpox vaccine, the hepatitis A vaccine, the rubella or German measles vaccine, and one of the rabies vaccines. So there are four vaccines that are made using human fetal cells. Now, I can understand, I mean, I mean, from the standpoint, say, of a Catholic, um, or uh, that, that that's abhorrent. I mean, you know, abortion is a, it's a sin, a sin worthy of excommunication where you don't get to participate in, you know, in the uh, sacraments of the Catholic Church. And so reasonably, I think when this became an issue um, in the 1990s, really, people asked the Pontifical Academy for Life, which is the major policy making body of the Catholic Church, can I do this as a Catholic? Can I reasonably vaccinate my child as a Catholic? And the answer was yes. I think primarily because the Catholics, like all Christians and Jews and Muslims, all religions care about their children. They care about the health of their children and vaccines, you know, put those children in the healthiest position possible. So I think that, that uh, you know, the Pontifical Academy for Life at the time, the person who made that decision was Joseph Ratzinger, you know, who ultimately became Pope Benedict XVI. So I think there is a ruling from this, from this, you know, advisory body. But um, no, I understand the, the, uh, the, the, the question, but the reason that, that fetal cells were used was that you always worried that the cells that were obtained from, say, monkey kidneys, which were used to make the polio vaccine, you know, could be contaminated with another virus, whereas fetal cells, you know, are sterile. So no other fetuses have been used since these two fetuses from the 1960s. Because a, a lot of people, I, I don't even know necessarily the sources, but when I was preparing for this and kind of asking my audience, okay, what's a question that you would ask Dr. Offit? There were a few people who said, no, it's not true that there were only two fetuses used in the 1960s. There have been multiple fetuses that have been experimented on and, and used, which is part of why some people just wholesale reject vaccines in the vaccine industry. Two fetuses. Gotcha. Um, Okay, one last question. I think it's one last question. Another an, another concern that people have is that they say that vaccines are not tested for uh, causing cancer or impairing infertility. Is that true? So so here's the way. So so typically, uh, take the HPV vaccine for example. So that vaccine was tested for seven years pre licensure in about thirty thousand people to show that you can induce a protective immune response, to show that it protected against so-called SYN2, SYN3, which is the sort of a requisite step to developing cancer uh, of the cervix, um, and to show that it could prevent infection. So, so that's what you had. You had 30,000 people that were tested. But that's, you know, it's not 10 years of study. It's not 20 years of study. So do we study those vaccines then decades later? Yes. Um, so I guess, I mean, I think it's reasonable for people to say, you know, 
but do you know everything? And the answer, I think, invariably in medicine is no. You never know everything. The question is, when do you know enough? When do you know enough in this case to say it's reasonable to get the HPV vaccine? I mean, you knew you had seven years of data. You knew that the vaccine was made using the same technology that was used to make the hepatitis B vaccine, which had been around for a lot longer and was shown to be you know, safe and at least over long term effective and protective and didn't cause anything else. Plus, it doesn't make sense. I mean, why this HPV vaccine would cause a problem since it's just made from the outer surface protein of the virus. I mean, HPV can cause cancer. And so, you, you, you know, if you're giving the HPV vaccine, could that cause cancer? First of all, remember that it's not a live virus, so it can't reproduce itself. Second, the two proteins of HPV that cause cancer, so-called E6 and E7, are not in that vaccine. Therefore, it doesn't make biological sense it would cause cancer. So the, the question when we launched that vaccine, when it was recommended by the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2006, was not, do you know everything? You never know everything. The question is, do you know enough? You certainly know it caused cancer. You certainly know the 30,000 people were getting cancer every year and 5,000 were dying every year, and that a choice every year not to get it was a choice to condemn those children to those cancers and to those deaths. The question is always, when do you know enough? Delayed vaccine schedule. Your thoughts on that? Vaccines are tested in combination uh, before they can be put onto the market. So with, when, with our rotavirus vaccine, for example, we had to prove that the vaccine didn't affect the safety or immunogenicity profile of existing vaccines and vice versa. Those are called concomitant use studies, and there's hundreds of them. So this, these are well-tested schedules, well-hewn schedules. When people make up their own schedule, i.e. a delayed vaccine schedule, all they're doing is increasing the period of time during which children are susceptible to these diseases with no benefit. So they may feel better. It may feel like it's better, but it's not better. I think you've answered a ton of questions and concerns that a lot of people have, not necessarily people who are anti-vaccine, but are reading a lot of information online and just aren't sure what to think. So I really appreciate that. Are there other resources that you would direct people to for good, solid information on vaccines? Sure. I think while well, our vaccine education center, Children's Hospital Philadelphia, we spent a lot of time and money trying to create, you know, trying to, to show these studies in a way that's understandable to, to people who don't necessarily have a science background. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the American Academy of Pediatrics, a group called Vaccinate Your Family, um, a group called the Immunization Action Coalition out of Minnesota. They all have great websites all on the, the, for the purpose of trying to explain ourselves again. I mean, I think the fact of the matter is, is that, that we don't see most of these diseases today anymore. So for young people like you, you're less compelled by these diseases. I mean, there was not an anti-vaccine movement associated with the polio vaccine. People desperately wanted that vaccine. I mean, the, we're living in a different time. So I do think we need to step back and re-explain ourselves, and we're trying to do that. Um, and so I think, I think, see, I separate these groups into two groups. I think there's sort of the vaccine skeptic, which is fair. I think I'm a vaccine skeptic. I mean, I'm on the FDA's vaccine advisory committee. All of us that sit around that table are vaccine skeptics. We want to see the data. And I think that when there's data, that's, that's fair. I, but I think that the other group, and that's the group I call anti-vaccine, are, are vaccine cynics. They think that there's just a conspiracy, that people like me are part of that conspiracy, and therefore we're not to be believed. And rather, you should just believe what, what that you find on the internet, which often can be enormously misinformative. So I think that's the frustration is the conspiracy theorists.
there's a whole other debate that we won't get into, but that is a huge part of this is the the mandates or the so-called mandates coming down from state governments that people, it, that kind of makes people, I think, even more skeptical. People who are questioning before, they're already worried about big pharma, they're already worried about what's in vaccines. Well, now you've got another group of bureaucrats telling you, well, this thing that you're skeptical about, this thing that you're not so sure about, you have to do it in order to go to public school or even private school in California. And if you know a doctor writes five medical exemptions, then that flags the board to have have to review it. And I think some people are scared. Some people are worried, okay, if there was if there was nothing for me to be scared of, then why would I be being bullied by these bureaucrats saying that I have to do this? I think that's another huge uh, point of concern as well. Yeah, I mean, I think in a better world, you wouldn't need mandates. I mean, I think in a better world, people would get good information and make good decisions for their children, which would be good decisions for society. Unfortunately, there's so much bad information out there that people make bad decisions for their children that put them in harm's way, I guess. And when there's outbreaks, you know, it, it's like that we're seeing now with measles and, and the United States next year will lose its status from the World Health Organization is a measles-free country. That's what just what's about to happen. So, 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 do, 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 should the state, in any sense, care for those children who are being affected? I mean, remember, of the 320 million people in this country, 500,000 can't be vaccinated. They depend on those around them to protect them. Do we have any? any responsibility to those children. Uh, I mean, uh, for example, in our hospital, we mandate vaccines. We mandate the flu vaccine. If you work in our hospital, if, no matter who you are, whether you're a doctor or a nurse or a nurse practitioner or environmental services or dietary services, you have to get the flu vaccine. Why? Because because you can spread flu in this hospital. And remember, we, we take care of a vulnerable population of children, many of whom can't be vaccinated. There are children who occasionally get influenza in this hospital, even though they didn't come in with it. And they are especially susceptible because they're sick and often immune compromised. Do we, as a healthcare worker, have a responsibility to them since they're in our care? Do we have a responsibility for those children? Our hospitals decided correctly, yes. I, I think that's a microcosm of the bigger macrocosm, which is society. Do you, as a society member, have a responsibility to those with whom you come in contact or with whom your child comes in contact? Do you have a responsibility? Or said another way, is it your right to, to have your child catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection. And I think you'd like to think in a better world, well, first of all, I think the answer is no, but I, I do think that, you know, in a better world, we should need mandates, but there's so much bad information out there that's causing people to make bad decisions for their, their children and for those with whom they come in contact, that that's, I guess, what it's come down to. It's, it's too bad. I wish it didn't come down to that too. And I think you're right. I think it does sort of harden those people who, who believe that, you know, sort of big farm or big government are, are overstepping their bounds. But what do you do? I mean, what do you do when there's five children in the intensive care unit in New York with severe pneumonia caused by measles because their parents made that decision and some of whom you know may have just been exposed for you know because other parents made a decision for them as a parent you're making decisions for other people's children hmm. when did when did when did we cross the line hmm. I, have, I have a lot of thoughts on that that could be a whole other part two different conversation because there's so much there um, but I want you to direct people if there's anywhere uh, where people can find you or find your books I want you to be able to uh, give that information well now they can find me here in my office that's where I am here at Children's Hospital. But, you know, you can, I mean, all the, the books that I write are all on Amazon, easy enough to find them. Just look at my name. You can find them. Um, okay. They're, they're around. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. 